0: Awesome day, it is the book of Mark, it is our second installment in our series in the book of Mark. Mark has given us an introduction to who Jesus is, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who was promised by the prophets, and God has given a forerunner or a herald To come before him to make way for the king. That's what we saw in the first eight verses last week. We enter into the first public appearance of Jesus. Mark, again, doesn't mince words. He's like the Twitter version of the gospel in which he gives us exactly what we need to know in as many, uh, as less characters as possible And we go to the first appearance of Christ in the book of Mark. It is his crowning, his anointing, his appointment to usher in the kingdom of God as the Messiah, the king, the anointed one who was promised. Now we don't know much about coronation day. We didn't grow up under a king and a queen other than what Anna and Elsa have told us about Coronation Day, right? But it was the day in which a king or queen was crowned. And they accept the responsibility of ruling over the people, usually holding a scepter, an orb, and the people... Place this king into the position of kingship. Interestingly enough, there are many Old Testament examples of appointing or anointing, or we would call it ordination of a king, coronation of a king. The priest originally was anointed or set apart for his role. As Moses poured oil on Aaron to consecrate him to the position of high priest, set him apart as holy for the service in the presence of God on behalf of the people. Saul and David were both anointed by Samuel as king, as God's chosen leader over his people. Again, pouring the oil signified the appointment for this position, setting them aside for the task as God's anointed one. Then you have the prophet Elisha, who comes after Elijah, who is covered by his cloak. And Elisha then takes up the cloak and is anointed As the prophet in place of Elijah. So we have Jesus now beginning his ministry with this, again, this affirmation, this anointing, not only from the herald, John the Baptist, but from the triune God himself, showing this is the anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus taking on the responsibility of the people here. This is coronation day, the coronation of the king. So let's turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 9, and we'll read briefly what it says to us this morning. So if you'll stand with me in the reading of God's word, we will stand and we will see what God has for us from the book of Mark this morning. Aren't you excited? Let's go. Let's do this. Here we go. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, the spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, With you, I am well pleased. Only three verses this morning, but it's jam-packed with a lot to talk about. So you can be seated and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for your word and your truth. Father, we thank you for the example of Christ who humbled himself, Father, so that we could be exalted. Father God, may we see people around us. As you see us, may we humble ourselves, Father, help us to be people of the gospel, to be people like Christ that see people in need and to point them to the king who came down to die for them. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your great truths in the scriptures and the work of Christ in our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There are many missionaries who work in Muslim countries all around the world in the Middle East, in North Africa, in Central Asia, in portions of the world, they have no problem getting Muslims to understand that Jesus was a great prophet of God. They have no problem with that. Someone who was sent, they have no problem with that. Someone who has great teachings to live by, they have no problem with that. Someone who is a... In in fact, a historical person. They have no problem with that. Someone who is held in great esteem and honor, that is not a problem for the Muslims of the world. But when it comes to Jesus being God, they cannot believe that. They cannot believe that the Word became flesh and dwelt among men just as the word of god says in the chapter 1 of john one missionary once told me a story in which they tell the people to help them understand that god could become man and they tell the story about a king who lived in his palace and he sat on his throne Ruling the entire world with great power, with great might. He wore royal robes and garments. But one day he realized that his people needed him. And he must go to be with his people. And he told his servants he didn't want to be dressed like a king, but wanted to be dressed like his people. So he put on commoner clothes, pauper clothes, and walked among the people, talking to them, helping them, being one of them. But just because he placed on commoner clothes, does that mean that he stopped being king? No. No. Certainly not. The same is said of Christ as he came into this world 100% man and 100% God, the king. He did not stop being God just because he took on flesh. Yet he identified with the people he came to save, becoming one of them so that he could save them. This is the text that we understand that he identifies with his people whom he comes to save. This is the text in which Jesus submits to a baptism of repentance. It's not that he himself is in need of repentance. But that his people are in need of repentance. And he has become like them. Placing himself in their shoes. Putting on their clothes so he himself can save them from sin. Amen? What would you think would be a king's coronation day? Would he be elevated? Receiving a crown? No, he humbles himself, receiving the blessing of God. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. This is our point number one this morning. The king identifies with his people. The king is now identifying with his people. Mark again, every word of Mark is rich with with vivid images and pictures and relationship to the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a beautiful, it's beautifully crafted. But he begins this section with the words, in those days. In those days, now most likely it's a reference to the days of John when he's baptizing in the Jordan. It's six months prior. John has been baptizing for six months, and after Jesus, he will baptize another six months. John's ministry was one year on the face of this earth. Then he was put in prison, and then he was beheaded by Herod. What many would think of as not a great ministry, right? His tenure wasn't that long, and yet Jesus calls him the greatest prophet to ever live. But in those days, when I read those words, it harkens me back to the days of the judges, Israel's darkest hours. If you read through the days of judges, you'll know how wicked it actually is. How wicked the people have become, they have become like the Canaanites before them, in which God drives out the people that were so wicked, and it during the time of the judges, it was wickedness to the max. It's probably about the time in which we live today, right? <clears throat> Judges 17 6 says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Get it? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's how Judges ends. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What does Mark say? In those days, there was a king. (laughs) And he's coming. And he's setting up his kingdom. Everyone's not going to do what is right in their own eyes. He's coming with a spirit baptism. And, and, And I think John says he comes with fire and with the spirit. The judgment and the grace of God. And that's what he's coming to set up, the kingdom of God. There's no king in Israel in the days of Judges. Now there is a king, and everyone cannot do what is right in their own eyes because the king has finally come. Last week, remember, we were introduced to John the prophet, the forerunner, the herald for the king. Israel has fallen short. We all have fallen short. John has come with a baptism of repentance, a need to turn from wickedness and sin. Remember, last week we talked about the closest thing we have to John's baptism at this time is a Gentile conversion. In which a Gentile or a pagan outside of Israel, outside of the people of God, outside of the promises of God, outside of the covenant of God would come into the promises of God, the covenant of God through immersion in water. They, like Israel, would go through the waters of God's judgment and as Israel walked on dry ground, recognizing God's grace in this symbolic cleansing of someone saying, I want to be God's people. So that's what this baptism is coming from. And now John is calling Jews in this baptism of repentance to come into the river Jordan and do as a Gentile would. He's saying you, you think that you're a people of God just because you have a a genealogy, or you think you're because of your 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 parents, your blood. No, you are in need of repentance. And now John is is baptizing the River Jordan, as Israel once crossed over the Jordan into the Promised Land as the people of God signify their need of cleansing and their washing from their sin, preparing for a new exodus, a new salvation of God, just as he did in the days of Moses and Joshua. And it would be the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world to bring about this new people, this new covenant. And so these two verses here, verse 8 and verse 9, are supposed to shock you. When you read verse 8, look at what it says. I have baptized you with water. This is John declaring, I have baptized you with water. But he who whom John is talking about, the one whom will come, the, the promised one, the anointed one, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will Cover you, he will immerse you with the presence of God, he will bring about a new creation from the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. And then it says in verse 9, and this is supposed to shock you Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. What? The perfect sinless son of God who will baptize in the Holy Spirit is going into the Jordan to a a baptism of repentance? How could this be that my king would die for me? First of all, Mark tells us another important fact. Jesus is from nowhere. That's what he's telling us. Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Where's Nazareth of Galilee? Has anyone ever heard of Commerce, Oklahoma? Maybe you have. Maybe you haven't. Maybe a couple people. Population 2,276. It is in the very northeast corner of the state of Oklahoma. I had to look up where it was. I didn't know where it was. Commerce, Oklahoma. It's maybe the home of one of the most famous Oklahomans ever, Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle is from Commerce, Oklahoma. He's a great Hall of Fame baseball player, one of the greatest of all time. He graduated from Commerce in 1949. I have a picture of his house here. There it is. Mickey Mantle's house in Commerce, Oklahoma. There you go. If you want to go to Commerce, that's, that's the place to go. That's where people go if they go to Commerce, Oklahoma, is see Mickey Mantle's house. You've seen it. You probably don't need to go. <clears throat> this is what Nazareth is. It's the small village. It's nothing. There's nothing there. And guess what? Jesus is from Not the big metropolis of Jerusalem. Not the theological center of all the religion, Jerusalem. He is from Nazareth. In John's gospel, there's an early account of early disciples finding Jesus. This is what it says in John chapter 1, verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him, of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. The son of Joseph, and Nathaniel said to him, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" He's like, "He's from Nazareth. How could anything good come out of Nazareth?" Philip said to him, "Come and see." So Nazareth of Galilee was like the hinterlands. It's like commerce, Oklahoma. It was not Jerusalem. It's not the central place of theological learning. It's a small village and a carpenter named Jesus, who now begins his ministry as the king. This is what was prophesied, actually, you guessed it, in the prophet Isaiah. Mark loves Isaiah, by the way. So next, after you read the book of Mark, you need to read the book of Isaiah. It's going to take you a lot longer to do that, but read it and read it again. And read it again and see the connections. But here's what he says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time. He brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. All right, these are two tribes of the 12, 12 tribes of Israel. Nazareth is here. I think Nazareth is in uh, Zebulon. I can't remember if it's Naphtali or Zebulon. But it's there. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And then verse 2 says this in Isaiah. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of eaten darkness, on them the light has shined. God is declaring the anointed one is coming from, guess where? The hinterlands. Naphtali, Zebulun, the land of Nazareth. Of Galilee and guess what John Mark is reminding us that the kingdom of God takes the lowest takes the poor in spirit those that recognize they have nothing to offer to God and he exalts them why that's what God did with the anointed one Jesus Christ. Jesus is actually modeling for us what it looks like to actually follow him. A humble and contrite spirit. And Matthew tells us that John, so Jesus comes to to the Jordan River to be baptized by John in a baptism of repentance. And John says, no, I don't want to do that. I know who you are. Matthew tells us in, in 3, verse 14, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So, why did Jesus take on the baptism of John? Well, Matthew declares to us that Jesus said it was to fulfill righteousness. All righteousness. The perfect, sinless Son of God, the Messiah, now is identifying himself with the sinful people of Israel in a baptism of repentance. You see, the fulfillment of all righteousness is going to come on the cross where he will take upon himself the sin of the world. So his public ministry begins with Jesus saying, I, the perfect, spotless lamb of God, will take upon myself these sinful people. I, the king, will lower myself to them. You see, all four gospels recount this baptism of Jesus He identifies with the people, their need of cleansing, saying, I will take their sin. I I think this is crucial for us as the church to understand these concepts by understanding our own baptism. See, when we are baptized, what are we saying? We are saying we are identifying with the perfect, sinless Lamb of God. The one who died and rose again. I am dead and now I live in Christ. The imputed righteousness of Christ is now upon me. Where Jesus' is baptism here, he is fulfilling all righteousness because he is saying I'm identifying with sinners and in their need for cleansing. When we are baptized into Christ, we are saying we are identifying with the righteousness of Christ, and we need him, and we are declared righteous. Mm. Mm. Let me ask you this. Do you identify with the king? Have you gone undergone a baptism signifying that your king has paid for your sins? And if you have, do you understand the major significance of that? And look at the pictures we get from Mark in in verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him. Like a dove. This is our second point this morning. It's thus. The king is given gifts in order to bless his people. The king is given gifts on his coronation day in order to bless his people. He begins verse 10, when he came up out of the water, there's significance here because it is immersion, right? That's We as Baptists love our immersion. That's where we get this, right? The significance is Jesus was immersed in the water. He came up out of the water. And when he came up out of the water, immediately, this is Mark's great term, he loves this term, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Literally ripped apart. And Mark is beginning the work of Christ with the heavens being ripped open. And he ends the work with the same idea. The heavens being ripped open. This is what he says in Mark chapter 15 verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing Christ upon the cross saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was what? The son of God. Right? This is the point Mark is trying to make in the beginning the father is declaring he is the son of God. At the end, it's the centurion declaring it's the son of God. But the heavens are being ripped open. Why? Because they have access now to the father because of what the son, son's work. That's what we see through the cleansing work of the son. And this, again, is is prophesied about in Isaiah, Isaiah 64, 1. Only if you would tear, rip open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence. Only if you would come down. Only if you would tear open the heavens and come down, Lord. It's interesting when when God's people are... uh, coming up out of Egypt they go to Mount Sinai and God tells the people consecrate yourself for the Lord will come down upon the mountain he's saying get ready the Lord's coming down and so they what do they do they wash themselves to prepare for the Lord's coming down And this is what the baptism of repentance John is doing. He's preparing the people for the heavens to come down. Why? Because the king is here and he's setting up his kingdom. And the heavens coming down and bestowing on the king the gift that he will give to his people. The gift of the Holy Spirit. And it descends upon him like a dove. This is the spirit was prophesied about. Guess where? Isaiah. Isaiah. Man, Isaiah. All these thoughts are coming from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There came from forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Remember, David's father is Jesse. The stump of Jesse, meaning it it has been cut off. The king, there is no king in Israel. It has been cut off. The stump of Jesse and the branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The spirit is resting upon the Lord's anointed. Verse 40, or Chapter 42 Verse 1 of Isaiah, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So the visible spirit descends upon him in a visible form, like a dove. It wasn't a dove, but it was like a dove. What does this mean? How, how, how. Obviously, we could see it. It was a visible form. It's coming down. But what does this look like? If it's not a dove, what is it? And what is he talking about? Well, I think that there are two Old Testament passages that relate to this, that he's telling us what the spirit is going to do or what God is doing in this moment, how he relates to what his work will be. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering or fluttering over the face of the waters. Like a dove. It's hovering. It's fluttering. Whatever you want to call it, the spirit is descending as it did in the creation narrative. It is fluttering above the water, signifying God's intended work in what? In creation. And we also have this again in the picture of the recreation or the new creation with Noah and the ark as the dove is the symbol of the new creation. When he sends out the dove after the waters of judgment have covered the earth, he sends out the dove to see if there is land. And the dove brings back what? An olive branch, symbolizing the peace from the judgment and the wrath of God. And so, this new creation, this recreation, this is what God does. Through the judgment upon Christ, how he will take it upon the cross. God will create new creations through the spirit of the living God. The pictures of the judgment and the wrath for sinners poured out upon Christ. Him taking it upon himself in order for the heavens to be made open and the spirit to descend upon people. He is baptizing people in the spirit of the living God so that what? So that they can be new creations created in the likeness of Christ. Paul doesn't just make this stuff up, does he? He gets that from the word of God. You are a new creation, created in the likeness of God through Christ. Amen? Through the Holy Spirit in which dwells inside of you. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. What amazing truth. We receive the Holy Spirit on what basis? because he identified with sinners he died on the cross for sinners and we are declared righteous why because we identify with him in his righteousness what an amazing truth the holy spirit is given to us on the basis of the righteousness of christ oh people of god live with thankful and grateful hearts being reminded of god's great love for you do not grieve the holy spirit Do not grieve the Holy Spirit whom he has given and purchased with his blood. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit as the prodigal son. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit as an unruly tenant. Do not believe. Grieve the Holy Spirit as the unforgiving servant. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit as an unprepared bridesmaid. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit as a servant who hides his talents. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit as a person who is in the rocky soil. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit as a barren fig tree that bears no fruit. Be the faithful servant who finds the treasure And his joy, he sells all that he has in order to buy the field. This is Jesus and the kingdom of God. This is what we're talking about. Do you know the treasure that you have in Christ? The sacrifice of the king to buy you back from Satan himself. Don't go and squander the gift that he has given to you. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by living in the filth of sin. Repent, for the King has died for you and now wants you to live with Him. Turn from your old ways and allow the Spirit of the living God to lead your life because you are a new creation created in Christ Jesus. Verse 11 And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Let's read the whole text. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. And the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This is point number three this morning. The king is, the affir- is affirmed as the ruler. It's the voice of heaven, the spirit, It's the triune God, affirming the kingship of Christ, affirming his appointment as the Messiah, the anointed one. It's the affirmation that this will be the one to pay for the sins of the world. He is the divine king. He is one in nature with God, co-eternal, co-equal with the Father. Speaking of the anointed one, we talked about this last week from Psalms. Psalms declare in Psalm chapter 2 that the Messiah will be the Son of God. Psalm 2, 7 I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. He is in the lineage of God, he is co eternal, co equal with God. He is not the son of Adam. But just as Jesus is not seen as the son of Adam, but the son of God, he is also doing another thing here. He is identifying himself with the sons of Adam. Humanity in the baptism of repentance. And so he is the true Israel. Israel being God's son in the Old Testament, Exodus 4:21, And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And so it was in the wilderness that God first designated Israel as his son. And now God is renewing Israel's sonship in the wilderness through the second Adam. The one true Israelite the very son of God. Hosea comments on this, Hosea 11.1. One, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Speaking of Christ, but also of Israel, the new Israel through the spirit of the living God, has now come through Jesus because he is the one in whom God is pleased and the Lord himself in his steadfast love will bring about his salvation through the judgment of the one he is pleased, the very son of God. And and in this way, we as the people of God identify with Christ And the way we do that is through a public profession of faith in which we call baptism. Now we declare ourselves what? Children of God. Why? Because the one true Israelite we are now identifying with. You see all these contexts and all these concepts coming together in the book of Mark But guess what, church? We have an identity problem. We have an identity problem in our our culture, in our life with our children. We have identity problems even in our own hearts. Where is your identity? Is it as as a child of God based upon the righteousness of Christ? Or is your identity in your social media account? Is your identity in your body? Is your identity in your wealth? Is your identity in how great your kids are? Is your identity in your spouse? Is your identity in your social status? Is it in your job? How about your health? Is that where you find your identity? Or is it a child of the king? Why? Because he gave his life for you. Is your identity built around being a son and daughter of the king who ransomed you and brought you into the family of God. See, the gospel, it not only saves you, but it also transforms you. And the reason I say this is because when you understand the depths of what Christ has done for you Then your life is changed. All you can do is live for the glory of God, turn away from your filth, and walk in the righteousness of Christ. That is what the gospel does. But the depth of what he has done for you, you have to search it in the scripture, you have to find it in the scripture, you have to ask the Lord to reveal it to you in the scriptures. It doesn't just wake up one day and say, I understand who Christ is fully. I understand the gospel, and I want to live for him fully. No, no. we have. We, he wants us to seek him. He wants us to find him. He wants us to be the guy who finds the treasure and is willing to sell everything that we have because we know how great a treasure it is. So that's my call for you this morning, is to live for the glory of God, not based upon because you have to, but because you want to, because of what Christ has done for you in identifying with your sin, your sick and twisted sins, the perfect sinless Lamb of God who was slain for sinners. So let's pray, church. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the work of Christ. We thank you for the identity that he took on as the sinful people. And yet, Father, help us to put on Christ, to put on the new nature, to put on the spirit of the living God, to not grieve the spirit in our lives, But, Father, immerse us with your presence that we may be people who fear you with our life, that we live for the glory of God because you are worthy. Father, we thank you for this church and we thank you for all of the people in it. We thank you for their life and we pray, Father, for their protection against the the world and all the things that are trying to um, take them out. And Father, we pray that we as like Christ would humble ourselves in saying, I need the spirit of the living God. I need God's guidance and leadership in my life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're now moving into a time of invitation. If you'll stand with me, uh, the altar is open. There are pastors who would love to spend the next few minutes of their time praying for you. And uh, Lord knows we all need prayer, but the altar is open for all of us to come and, and ask the Lord to change our hearts, to be led by the spirit of the living God in areas that need to be cleansed, need to be washed, the spirit to have full control in our lives. Let us do that right now. Let us pray to the Lord. Give thanks for his work, as well as ask him to do a new work in our hearts and mind today.